All right, well, uh, today is the third and final week in the series on money uh, that we've been in this month, a series that I've called This is a Test, uh, because that's what the Bible uh, says that money is. In the first week of the series, we considered how we ought to think about money, and then last week we considered what the Bible has to say about getting money and keeping money And today we're going to consider how we should use God's money. And I think I said this in the first week, but I understand how it uh, is that the very idea of a pastor standing before you telling you how to use money has the potential to be really annoying. Well, what are you laughing about? I I didn't think you'd know what I was talking about. Uh, You know, I I understand that it can come off kind of like fingernails on a chalkboard. Uh, I I am clued into this. You work hard for your money. Uh, You have many obligations to meet uh, with the money that you have. You have many people from your bank to the retailers to the government to charities trying to figure out how to relieve you of your money. And the last thing many people want to do is go to church and have someone tell them how they ought to use their money. So I understand the feeling. I really do. As a famous president once said, I feel your pain. The hand motion's good. The voice isn't any any good. And yet, as I mentioned in this series already, the Bible has a lot to say about money. God is very concerned with your relationship with money and what it reveals about you, what it reveals about me, including what it reveals about our love for him. And if we can just be really honest here for a second, these negative feelings that arise when money is discussed in church, they really are very telling about how faulty our attitudes are toward money. If money is a test, and the Bible says it is, then how we use the money we have, what we do with our money, is important to God. Money simply cannot be an uh, off-limits topic because God doesn't allow us to put any part of our lives off-limits to Him. If we're going to call Him Savior and Lord, which... When we receive him as Savior, we get him as Lord. And so you can't pick between Savior or Lord. Nobody would ever pick Lord. You get Savior and Lord. And if that's what he is, then he gets total access to our lives. He has the right to go to work, to look into every single area of our lives. He does not allow us to exempt any areas from his oversight. We can't say to him, you can be my Savior and Lord, except that I'll continue to do what I want with my body. He doesn't allow us to say, you can be my Savior and Lord, except that I get to continue to treat people however I want. And he doesn't allow us to say, you can be my Savior and Lord, but don't go sticking your nose into my finances, Don't go telling me what to do with my money. 
And so today, willingly or unwillingly, we're going to allow God to speak to us through his word about how we're to use money. I've titled today's message, How to Use God's Money, because this is the belief that we must come to if we are going to use money properly, if we're going to use it well. We have to believe what is true. Everything, including everything we have, belongs to God. You mentioned this in the uh, first week of the series, the 50th Psalm, verses 11 and 12. God says this, I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. He owns it all. Both in creation and redemption, everything rightly belongs to God. He looks out over the entire world and he says, mine. It was Abraham Kuyper who said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And God looks at your life and my life, and God looks at your money, and he looks at my money, and he declares, mine. It's all mine. So to use the money we have in a way that pleases God requires that we believe this, that we believe everything belongs to him, that nothing belongs to us. It requires us to believe that we are simply stewards of another's resources not owners ourselves. Before becoming a pastor, I was a property manager. I, I managed um, about 500 apartments. And a whole lot of money passed through my hands every month. It was the kind of money that within just a few months, I could have been independently wealthy if I could have used the money however I wanted but I couldn't because it was not mine. I had a responsibility, and my responsibility to, was to use that money in a manner that was consistent with the true owner of it, the person who owned the property. I was not free to allocate that money according to my wishes. I was simply a steward, a caretaker, not an owner. And most of us, in some way or other, understand this in our own jobs. In one way or another, many of us are tasked with handling someone else's money and doing it in a way that's consistent with how they want their money to be used. And when we handle someone else's money in a manner inconsistent with their wishes, words like theft and fraud come into the conversation. And consequences like restitution and firing, and jail come into view. And yet God is the owner of everything. We have nothing apart from him. It's all his. And yet so often people give no thought to using God's money in the way that he wants it used. So if we're going to use it correctly, we have to truly believe that it belongs to God. It isn't ours. We are simply caretakers of what he has entrusted 
to us. And one of my prayers here today is that God would allow every one of us in this room to understand this, to truly believe and embrace this, to have this truth buried deep in our hearts and minds. So, how does God want his money to be used? Well, there's so much that could be said about that, but I think that everything we could say could at least be uh, placed in two broad categories. First of all, God wants people to use the money he entrusts to them to provide for themselves and their family. And secondly, God wants us to use his money to make eternal investments, to invest in things that have eternal rather than temporal returns on investment. So first, God wants us to use the money he entrusts to us to provide for ourselves and our family members. Friends, you never have to feel bad about being concerned and dedicated to caring for yourself and your family with the resources that you have, with the money that God has given you. He has given it to you for that very purpose. In fact, the Bible is downright adamant that people provide for themselves and for their family members. In 1 Timothy 5.8, Paul writes something very interesting. It's said in the context of him writing about the care of widows. And just before he explains that widows could not be put on the the list of receiving care from the church unless they were over 60, were well-known for good deeds, and were hospitable in making the point that widows should be cared for by their own families. He writes, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever, downright adamant that we provide for ourselves and our families. These are strong words. Failure to provide for family is a denial of the faith. And again, according to the Apostle Paul, makes one worse than an unbeliever. The thought here is that even people who are far from God care enough about their family to take care of them. So to fail to do so makes one worse than someone who doesn't have a relationship with God. So what is it that we are to provide for ourselves and our families with God's money? Well, obviously, our most basic obligation is to provide food, clothing, and shelter, the essential needs of life. But here's something we may not often consider. This obligation does extend from parents to children. Most of us recognize that. But it also extends from children to parents, siblings to each other. Grandparents to grandchildren, grandchildren to grandparents. You could go on and go on. Families have a responsibility to provide for one another's needs. Do you understand that 
According to the Bible, the primary obligation for providing for the physical needs of Christians in need is not the church, but the person's biological family. And what Paul is doing in 1 Timothy, basically he is compelling family members who aren't to begin living up to this obligation. The church's obligation to help with physical needs comes into play when biological family members legitimately cannot or in disobedience to God will not provide for each other. You are responsible to provide for your kids, mom and dad. You are responsible to provide for your siblings in need, brothers and sisters. Grandparents, you have a responsibility to your grandchildren. Kids and grandkids, you have a responsibility to your parents and grandparents. Everything is God's. He's given some of what is his to you to use for this purpose, to provide for yourself and the needs of your biological family. In the United States, many of us have been able to live over the past several decades with little responsibility for our family members. That's not true of everyone, and some of you are already living this out, but for many people that has been so. But friends, that may not always remain so. The economic situation in our nation is precarious. Many of us are just a few missed paychecks or less away from true financial hardship. Much of the security that past generations have had seems to be hanging in the balance. Social security may not always be available. They keep telling us it will, but I don't believe them. Your retirement account is just one stock market crash from nothing, from having nothing. Financial realities for some of us, and perhaps for all of us, may someday force us to consider things that we generally don't have to consider now. Mom and dad might have to move in with you. Grandma and grandpa may not be able to continue to live independently, but may not have the resources to move into the the posh care facility. Here's a tough one. Adult siblings and their family might have to live together to make ends meet. I love my brother and his family, but I've never wanted them to live with us. (laughs) Hopefully it doesn't come to this. But friends, we do not know what the future might hold. And some of you are already experiencing these kinds of realities. And if you have stepped up and you have done what needed done to provide for your family, then you have used God's money well, and he is pleased with you. God wants his money used to provide for the material needs of you and your family, food, clothing, and shelter. However it is that we can go about doing that when the need arises. Next, and I think this one warrants mentioning If you're providing the basic needs for your family 
And if you're making the eternal investments that we're going to talk about here in a few minutes, I think that, that you need to know that it is okay to use some of the money God has given you for good times and nice things. You know, sometimes in the church, we talk so much about the dangers of money and the dangers of materialism and the dangers of greed that I think we occasionally leave people with the idea that if they have anything more than their next meal, that somehow they're displeasing to God. And I don't think that's really true. You know, Jesus himself, throughout the New Testament, we see that he was a frequent party goer. He went to parties. You know, parties take money. You know that if you've had one recently. Parties take money, and it's okay to spend some of God's money on good times. If you can afford it, and the needs of your family, the basic needs are being met, and you're meeting this next obligation of eternal investments, and you still have some money left over, spending it on good times and nice things is okay with God. I personally have not found anything in Scripture that convinces me that good stewardship requires no entertainment, no vacation, no parties, dilapidated houses, and dangerous cars. I've just not found it. The early church often met in the homes of wealthy patrons. Some of God's people, even in the early church, had some pretty nice stuff. To the extent that you can, within your means and without neglecting your greater obligations, you should use, I believe, some of God's money to enjoy good times with family and friends and provide some nice things for those you love. That's going to look different for different people, but the point is that it's okay. Now, if you're spending all of your money on these things... And not making the eternal investments we'll talk about here in a minute, then you're not using God's money right. But if you're doing those things and there's still money left over, it's okay to have fun. God is pro-fun. And I believe it's okay for you to buy some stuff. And it better be okay because you all are out there feverishly buying some stuff. It's between you and God to determine where these lines are to be drawn. But here's what we do need to understand in this conversation. Make no mistake about it, there are lines. There is too much. But you and God have to figure that out. Scripture does not give us a one-size-fits-all answer to the question of how much nice stuff we can have. So we're to provide the basic needs of food, clothing, and shelter. We can work out between ourselves and God how much of his resources it's acceptable for us to use on good times and nice things. And finally, the Bible is supportive of preparing for the future security of your family. Proverbs 21.20 says this, In the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil, but a foolish man devours all he has. Now, I understand that meeting the basic needs of life itself is a pretty significant challenge on its own. I understand this. I I live in the same world you all live in. Prices keep going up. 
Wages don't seem to keep going up. And so you should not hear any condemnation today if you are struggling to make ends meet. But just because many of us may be in that situation doesn't mean that it's ideal. And it doesn't mean that constant struggle to make ends meet is somehow the most righteous way to live. In the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oils. There's more than enough for today. There's more than enough for tomorrow. There are stores for the future. It's the foolish who devours everything that he has. And I think what is in view here is the person who with discipline could store up reserves. They have the means, they have the ability to do it if they would be disciplined. But because of a lack of discipline, they use all that they have. It is okay to spend some of God's money to prepare for your family's future, to provide reserves for the future. Now, this is an area where Christians disagree. John Wesley famously said, When I die, if I leave behind me ten pounds, you and all mankind can bear witness against me that I have lived and died a thief and a robber. But here are a couple things to consider about that. Ten pounds, uh, from my research, was at least um, a third of John Wesley's yearly needs. So even in saying that, Wesley was acknowledging that he had more than many of us have. How many of us have four months of reserves? Not very many. I missed something funny, I guess. I got about four minutes. (laughs) Wesley was a great man. I'm not convinced he was entirely right in this view. Let me ask you, who is likely to be able to help more people along the way if both people's hearts are right toward God? Is it the person who is constantly struggling to make ends meet? Or is it the person who has stores of choice food and oils? I think it's the person with stores. It's true you can be generous with little or much, But in order to be generous, you have to have some margin and you have to have something set aside. There has to be something left over after the food, clothing, and shelter. And Proverbs commends the person who builds up stores of food and oil. The person who builds up stores of resources for the care of their family and for making eternal investments. I believe, is pleasing God. Now, if they're only building stores of reserves for their own selfish use or out of some type of pride, then there's a problem. 
But if motivated correctly, preparing for the future, building up stores of resources is commended by the Bible. So God's money should be used to provide for the needs of yourself and your family, food, clothing, shelter. Good times and nice things are between you and God to work out and setting something aside for the future. And then God wants us to use his money to make eternal investments. Many of us are probably doing fairly well with providing for our families, at least the food, clothing, shelter part. But this isn't all that God wants his money used for. He wants us making investments in eternal things. Here's what 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19 says. This is just a great passage. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. I don't see any condemnation of wealth in that passage. I see a warning. It's uncertain. Don't trust in it. But I don't see a condemnation of it. Simply encourage not to trust it, but to trust in God and encourage to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. If a person can do this, then it shows that money is not their master. God is. And when that's the case, money is actually, and having money is actually a good thing. In fact, probably a little known fact about Wesley is he encouraged people to gain all the money they could. He encouraged people to earn as much as they could possibly earn for the purpose of being able to give more and more of it away. A great example of this in our own day is Pastor Rick Warren, who you know wrote the best-selling book in history other than the Bible. That's pretty impressive stuff. I think I'm right about that. It, it's up there somewhere, but I think it's the best-selling book other than the Bible. And he has made lots of money. And what I understand he now does is he reverse tithes. 90% of everything he receives, he gives, and he lives on 10. Now you say, well, it's not hard to live on that 10%. And you're right. Still an impressive thing for a person to do. If you use the money God entrusts to you for his purposes, then that money is laying up treasures for the coming age. God gives us money in this present evil age, and he wants us to make investments with it that will only receive a return in the future age when Christ's rule and reign is in full expression. So do good. Be rich in good deeds. Be generous and be willing to share. These are the things that God wants done with his money 
that are making investments in eternal things. So let's consider two ways that we can make good on the obligation to use God's money for eternal purposes. First of all, God wants the money he entrusts to us to be given toward his work in the world, toward his mission in the world. And this mission is nowhere better defined than Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Most of you are familiar with these. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is God's work in the world, His Spirit-empowered people making disciples of all nations. And carrying out that work takes money. It really does. You can't send missionaries to foreign lands without money. You can't buy curriculum to train children in the ways of the Lord without some money. It takes money. As First Timothy said, God wants us using his money for things that have value in the coming age. And nothing has greater value in the coming age than people coming into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. There is no greater eternal investment a person can make than investing in the salvation of people who are right now far from God. And the primary vehicle through which people around the world are being reached for Christ is the local church. You say, Brian, that sounds awfully self-serving. Well, it's true. Evangelism experts say that the best evangelism strategy known in the world is planting churches. Planting churches. And most effective missions organizations are working to support local churches in the areas that they're trying to reach. God is building his church. He gave himself for his church. So the first place that eternal investing should happen is through the local church. Now, as God enables you, by all means, give to parachurch ministries that are doing great commission work. But the first and primary place that a person should give toward God's work in the world is the local church. It goes beyond the purpose of today's message to try to lay out the biblical case for tithing. We've, we've done that before. But suffice it here to say that I believe and the leaders of this church believe, at least they've not admitted if they believe anything different, that uh, that was supposed to be funny. Um, it, it wasn't. Um, <laughs> that tithing, giving 10% of one's income to the local church, is a biblical principle that all Christians should follow and that if they did, churches would never have to have meetings about how they're going to pay the light bill. Thankfully, we've never had a meeting like that here. But churches all over the country have to meet and put their heads together and figure out how are we going to meet our basic responsibilities. If everybody gave according to what the Bible says to give, instead that have meetings about what new initiatives can we undertake 
to use these resources that God's people have given to his purposes. That's what would be happening in churches. Now, if you're a member here, you know that we do not require tithing of our members. We do require regular and substantial financial support. Now, what does require mean? That means we ask you to do it. There's no enforcement mechanism. There's no Bruno and Biff to, uh, to, to make sure that this uh, happens. But just because we have made the requirement regular and substantial giving doesn't mean that we don't believe tithing is the ideal and what Christians ought to do. We're not legalistic about it. But, if we, but we believe that if we ever really believe that our money actually belongs to God, then making eternal investments, including tithing, won't be a burden, but rather will be a joy. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, which I think is the high watermark of teaching on giving in the New Testament. He writes, each person should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, so not not legalistically, because God loves a cheerful giver. And then he goes on a few verses later and he writes, you'll be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. It's a beautiful passage on giving. Now, I don't talk about this much, so I hope you can tolerate it here today. But I will share it whether you can or can't. Those who claim to know say that in churches it is usually true that about 20% of the members of the church tithe. About 60% give, but it doesn't approximate a tithe. And about 20% give nothing. And um, while I don't know the giving records of individual people, I know the patterns And the patterns that I've been told by the folks who handle our money is that this is roughly true for our own congregation. Friends, it should not be that way. It shouldn't be that way. If this is your church home and you are in that 20% who does not give or you're in the 60% who doesn't give a tithe but you're not even giving regularly and substantially, then I encourage you to change that. Friend, you own nothing. I own nothing. Everything we have is God's. And he wants some of that to be used toward making eternal investments toward his work in the world. And so don't feel condemnation here today if you're in that group of people that I'm directing this at. Don't feel condemned. I've been in that group myself. Don't feel condemned. But do commit to change. Do commit to change. 
The second specific way to make eternal investments is this. Help who you can. You know, there are people in need all over the place. And every once in a while, one of them crosses your path. And when they do, and you have the ability to help them, do so. Help who you can. You can't and I can't end poverty in the world. We can't do it. But help who you can. Help the person God puts in your path who's in need. In Matthew 25, Jesus taught about the sheep and the goats. And he said that when the Son of Man comes in his glory, that he'll divide all mankind into two categories, sheep and goats. And of those who will be welcomed into eternal life, the sheeps, I'm sorry, the sheep, (laughs) Jesus says, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you. (laughs) This is the creation of the world. It's always great to have a big grammatical error right at an important part of your message. That's awesome. Now I just need a moment to recover. (laughs) All right, I think I can go on. (laughs) For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we do these things? And in Matthew 25, 40, Jesus says this, The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers, you did for me. The responsibility here is not to end world poverty. The king is concerned with how you and how I respond to the one. How do you respond to? To the one. You can't help everybody. But are you willing, am I willing to help the one that the king sends our way? And the responsibility wasn't even, it doesn't seem to me, to fix this person's problem once and for all. The problem was to meet a pressing need. Food, a drink, clothes some care when they're sick, a visit when they're in prison. Help who you can, how you can. You can't do it all, but do what you can. God wants us to share his concern for the poor and the disadvantaged. Do what you can for who you can. We have to keep in mind that we are not the source of daily bread for anybody. God is. But for today, you might be the person that God uses to get daily bread to someone. And then tomorrow, he might use someone else to get daily bread to that person. Do what you can for who you can. 
So many people today think that so much should be done for so many, but they always want someone else to do it. They want the church to do it, or they want the government to do it. Now, God is concerned with what both the church and the government do. The church and the government both have responsibilities before God. But God is also very concerned, and I would say much more concerned, with whether you and I are willing to personally help the person that he puts in our pathway. God isn't as concerned with how helpful you are with other people's money as he is how helpful you are with your own money. Amen, Brian. I will says, encourage yourself in the Lord. Amen, <laughs> Brian. All right. So this is how we should use God's money. To provide for ourselves and our families. Basic needs of food, clothing, and shelter. Prepare for the future to the extent that we can without neglecting eternal investing, and if able, provide some good times and nice things. And we're to make eternal investments, giving to God's work in the world, first and primarily through local churches, and then we are to help who we can, how we can, those in need that God puts in our pathway. And all of this should be done out of an attitude of generosity. 2 Corinthians 9 again, He who sows generously will reap generously, for God loves a cheerful giver. God's money should be used generously because God is a generous God. How generous has he been with all of us? His generosity defies description. For 2,000 years, we've been standing in awe of his generosity to us. This is why he wants us to be generous. God loves people who are cheerful, who are joyful about using his money the way that he wants it used. So providing for your family, making eternal investments, doing so generously and joyfully, this is how we ought to use God's money. Why don't you stand?